Chapter 21, Section 3 of J. B. Bury's The Student's Roman Empire, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Penfold. The Student's Roman Empire, Part 2, by John Bagnell Bury. Chapter 21. Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian. 69-96 A.D. Section 3. Domitian. Titus was succeeded by his brother Domitian, who had just reached the age of thirty. It has been already mentioned how he escaped from the sack of the capital by the Fetellians, and was saluted as Caesar after the Flavian victory. But Mucianus did not allow him to exercise political power. He was eager to win military fame, like his brother, and wished to take part in the Batavian War. But Mucianus urged that it would be enough to exhibit the pomp of the Principate at Lugdunum, as Cerealis had nearly finished the war. Domitian yielded, but was so disgusted at his want of influence, that when he returned to Rome he refused any longer to act as a figurehead in public matters, and retired to a via on the Alban Mount, where he lived with his mistress Domitia, daughter of Corbulo, the hero of the Armenian Wars. But in the few months during which he had represented his father, he had tasted the pleasures of power and sovereignty, and he felt bitter when, after his father's return, he was kept strictly in the background. He lived with his father, and it was thus clearly shown that he was under the patria potestas. He was jealous of his brother, who had been made consort in the empire. While Vespasian and Titus were born in the cella, Domitian had to follow in the lectica. He was six times consul, but only once at the beginning of the year, 73 A.D., and then because Titus retired in his favor. He still yearned to distinguish himself in warfare, and when the Parthian king asked for Roman help against an invasion of the Alans, Domitian left nothing undone to induce Vespasian to send him, and when Vespasian refused, he tried by gifts to induce other eastern potentates to make similar requests for help. Outwardly, indeed, Domitian received all the honors which an emperor's son might expect. He was allowed to wear the laurel wreath, his image was represented on coins, and his superscription along with those of his father and brother on public buildings. He was made a member of all the sacred colleges. But he had no political influence, he was given no opportunity of winning military renown, and no mere outward marks of honor could reconcile him to his position. It was said that on his father's death he formed the plan of bribing the praetorians to make him imperator by a double donative. He seems at all events to have hoped that he would occupy the same place under Titus which Titus himself had occupied under Vespasian. But though Titus recognized him in an unofficial way as his consort and successor, the proconsular imperium and tribunician power were not conferred upon him. This was a new and bitter disappointment, and there is no doubt that jealousy and suspicion prevailed between the brothers. Titus, however, really regarded Domitian as his successor, for he had no male children, and in order to avoid any question about the succession, he actually proposed a marriage between his daughter Julia and Domitian. Unions between uncles and nieces had been legitimized by Claudius, but they were a gross defiance of old Roman prejudices, and Domitian was a strong upholder of Roman religion. Besides this, he was passionately fond of his mistress Domitia, whom he married, and the idea of Titus fell through. 
Julia was united to her cousin Flavius Sabinus, the son of Vespasian's brother, who perished in the Vitellian catastrophe. Domitian had ridden at full speed to Rome from his brother's bedside, and was greeted imperator by the praetorians, and he counted September 13th as the Dies Imperii, from which he also dated his tribunician year, although the tribunitia potestas was not conferred upon him till September 30th. He assumed the chief pontificate immediately, and also the title Pater Patriae, which his predecessors had been accustomed not to accept for some time after the accession. This trait is characteristic of the autocratic and imperious nature of Domitian. The reign of Domitian was marked by a new and distinct departure in autocratic policy, forming, it is hardly too much to say, an epoch in the growth of the Principate towards absolute monarchy. By important wars against Dacians and Germans on the Danube frontier, and by the advance of Roman arms in Britain. These wars will be described in the following chapter. Here must be mentioned a small campaign on the Rhine, by which Domitian secured the military distinction which he had desired and which befitted the position of an imperator. In 83 AD the emperor proceeded to Gaul on the plea of a census in that country, but his real object was to cross the Rhine and invade the country of the Chatai. What the Chatai had done to provoke this attack is not known. The chastisement of their plundering bands, which often troubled the upper province, hardly required an imperial expedition. In any case a victory was gained over the Chatai, and Domitian celebrated a splendid triumph and assumed the name Germanicus, by which he is constantly called in contemporary literature. His enemies ridiculed this victory as a mere farce, and it was maliciously whispered that in the triumphal procession slaves wearing wigs of fair hair and dressed in German fashion acted the part of Chattic captives. On the other hand, the poets seeking for imperial favor exaggerated the imperial exploit. The victory, of whatever nature it was, must have been of some importance, though this is not always recognized, and it was connected with a new plan of frontier defense which will be described in the following chapter. In the beginning of his reign, Domitian was gracious to the Senate, as the senators themselves admitted. Like Titus, he put down delation and punished delators on the principle that unless a delator is chastised, he is encouraged. But when the emperor had established his power securely and felt himself after his Germanic triumph a true imperator, he soon began to let the nobles see that they were greatly mistaken if they expected him to adhere to the constitution of augustus naturally endowed with a capacity for governing and imbued with an autocratic spirit he was determined to rule the state himself the joint rule of the senate the diarchy which augustus had framed so tenderly seemed to domitian intolerable and he aimed at reducing it to a nullity other emperors had indeed assumed more than their own share of the government, and made the Senate fill its dependent position. But they had done so only by fits and starts. Tiberius and Nero had been autocratic in their last years, but they had made no constitutional innovation vitally affecting the relation between princeps and Senate. But Domitian worked towards the political annihilation of the Senate, systematically and in cold blood, and that is why the senatorial party regarded him with such intense hatred. 1. It has been already explained that the princeps exercised influence on the constitution of the Senate by his right of commendation in the case of those magistracies which conferred admission to that body, but he had no right of directly appointing senators. 
such right of adlection as it was called could only be exercised by the censor and the censorial power did not belong to the competence of the princeps according to the augustan constitution claudius had assumed the censorship and more recently vespasian had assumed it but in each case only to lay it down again at the end of a year in fact the maintenance of the censorship as an independent magistracy not connected with the principate as such but which the princeps or any other eligible citizen might fill when required was an essential feature of the principate and domitian saw this clearly he saw that the censorship was the means by which he could reduce the position of the senate to insignificance once the princeps possessed the powers of a censor perpetually the control of the senate was entirely in his hands and the system of augustus was undermined domitian did not hesitate he first caused the censoria protestas to be conferred on him end of eighty four or early in eighty five a d but a few months later assumed the office of censor for life with this power of electing and ejecting whomsoever he chose he made the senate completely dependent on his own will the principate thus received a permanent shock for his successors though they did not assume the title of censor silently retained the censorial powers the senate continued indeed to share the cares of government its nominal position in the constitution remained unchanged but virtually the principate had become a monarchy without disguise in connection with this important innovation it is probable that the census office a sensibus populus romanus which was under the control of the senate was made an imperial office over which a knight presided two domitian was consul ten times during his principate seven times in succession from eighty two to eighty eight a d then again in ninety ninety two and ninety five a d he never continued in office beyond the first of may sometimes not beyond the ides of january but it looks as if he intended to assert for the princeps the right of giving the name to the year in this he was following the example of his father who throughout his reign generally assumed the consulship but domitian went further than vespasian in eighty four a d he caused himself to be designated consul for ten years he had precedents for this in the case of tiberius who along with sejanus had been designated consul for five years twenty nine a d and in that of nero who had been designated for ten years fifty eight a d neither tiberius nor nero had cared to carry out their designations and domitian did not fully carry out his but he went nearer to a continuous consulship than any of his predecessors since the consulships of augustus himself from thirty to twenty three b c three the senate was very anxious for its own safety to have the principle laid down that the emperor was incompetent to condemn a senator to death titus had acted on this principle but he had not formally admitted it domitian a strong asserter of the higher power of the princeps refused to recognize a decree of this kind which the senate wished to pass and what made matters worse was that domitian formed his concilium out of knights as well as senators so that when a senator was tried before the imperial court a knight might be one of his judges four practically domitian treated the senate as of no account he only asked its opinion on matters of no consequence and he constantly used his right of voting first in order to force the rest to vote as he willed the senators were completely cowed five in outward forms too domitian displayed his autocratic spirit the procurators were permitted to designate the emperor as dominus ac deus and the same expression was used by the poets but it was not recognized as an official title 
The citizens, however, always spoke of him as Dominus. Domitian was regarded by the people as something very different from a first citizen. Further, he regularly wore the purple garment of triumph even when he appeared in the Senate. He was attended by twenty-four instead of twelve lictors, and he allowed only statues of gold and silver to be set up in his honor. If Vespasian had made Augustus his model, Domitian derived precepts of government from the memoirs of Tiberius, a book which he constantly studied. Like Tiberius, he was an able and clear-headed ruler. He controlled with a strong hand the officials both in the provinces and in the city. Only those were appointed of whose personal devotion the emperor was secure, and this principle was applied even to senatorial provinces. Candidates whom Domitian mistrusted were induced to withdraw, and received in compensation the proconsular salary of a million sesterces. But Domitian, unlike Tiberius, did not suffer the praetorian prefects to gain any political influence, like that which Sejanus and Tigalius had possessed. In this he was following the example of his father. Domitian was fully conscious that the independent position of the emperor in regard to the senate necessarily rested on the support of the army. The Flavian dynasty had been set up by the soldiers. Both Vespasian and Titus had maintained its military character. But Domitian went even further than they in displaying the importance of the legions and in emphasizing his own character as imperator. His breach with the senate rendered him more dependent on the favor of the army. He added a very large item to the yearly expenditure by increasing the pay of the legionary soldiers by one-third, from nine to twelve arai, and that of the praetorians in a similar proportion. The ordering of the finances was one of the most difficult problems for Domitian, as for his father. The extravagance of Titus had diminished the full treasury of Vespasian, and Domitian had no intention of resuming Vespasian's policy of parsimony. On the contrary, Domitian was a most open-handed sovereign. His liberality to his friends was profuse, and like Titus, he entertained the populace with frequent games and shows on a magnificent scale. On these occasions he distributed congiaria, or bread-money, among the poorer citizens, at the rate of three hundred sesterces each. He tried to diminish the burdens of the people, and cancelled arrears due to the errarium of longer standing than five years. He abandoned the claim of the state, which had been enforced by Vespasian, to the unallotted strips of land in Italy. In his financial measures he was assisted by the advice of Claudius Etruscus, who had been a minister of Nero but a policy of this kind could not be permanent. The wars in Britain and on the Danube were costly, while the buildings which he undertook and the spectacles which he exhibited demanded immense sums. To increase the tribute and oppress the mass of the population was against the traditions of the empire, and especially opposed to the principles of Domitian. He was thus placed in the same circumstances which had driven Gaius and Nero into a systematic course of plundering the nobility. But other motives, along with these financial necessities, contributed to make the last days of Domitian a reign of terror for the aristocracy. His wife Domitia had borne him one son, who had died in childhood, and without an heir Domitian did not feel secure. He saw in every distinguished man a possible successor, a possible assassin. His suspicions and fears were confirmed and increased by the rebellion of L. Antonius Saturninus, probably early in 88 A.D., the governor of Upper Germany. He was a man of noble family, and had accomplices in the senatorial ranks. He induced the two legions which were stationed in his headquarters, eleven Claudia and twenty-one Rapax, 
to proclaim him imperator, and he relied for the success of his enterprise on the assistance of the free Germans beyond the Rhine, doubtless the Chatai. The revolt, however, was promptly and unexpectedly suppressed by L. Apius Maximus Nurbanus, who arrived with the Eighth Legion and defeated the forces of Saturninus, who had not received the aid of his German allies, because the ice on the Rhine had suddenly thawed and prevented their crossing. It is not known for certain where Nurbanus and his legion came from, but it seems probable that he was the legatus of the legion stationed at Mogentiacum, and thus a subordinate of Saturninus, who was doubtless stationed at Vindenissa. The battle took place perhaps in the neighborhood of Basilia. The news of the revolt caused great consternation at Rome, and Domitian himself went forth to suppress the pretender, but heard on the march that Nurbanus had anticipated him. Domitian left nothing undone to discover the fellow-conspirators of Saturninus, and Roman senators are said to have been subjected to horrible tortures in the investigations which followed. Many were put to death, and almost all the officers in the rebellious army were executed. From this time forth Domitian developed into a suspicious tyrant, somewhat like Tiberius in his later years. He hated and feared the aristocracy, and the aristocracy hated and feared him his niece julia whom he had refused to marry but whom he afterwards seduced from her husband flavius sabinus had exercised upon him a softening influence and after her death in eighty nine a d he felt that he had no one whom he could trust he still devoted his time to public business with unwearying diligence but he lived solitary inaccessible and misanthropic at a later period he made some provision for the succession to the principate he had two cousins Flavius Sabinus, the husband of Julia, and Flavius Clemens, husband of Flavia Domitilla. Domitian let it be understood that he destined the two infant sons of Clemens to be his successors. He changed their names to Vespasian and Domitian, and entrusted their education to the learned Quintilian. Another cause which operated in converting Domitian into a tyrant was the continuance of that irritating and obstinate Stoic opposition which we have seen at work under Nero and again under Vespasian. In 93 AD a number of these worshippers of Cato fell under suspicion and were punished. Herenius Senecio had composed a panegyric on Helvetius Priscus, who had perished under Vespasian. He was accused of maestas by the delator Metius Carus, and was condemned to death. Fania, the widow of Priscus and daughter of Thracia, had supplied Herenius with the materials for this work. She was therefore banished and her property confiscated. The composition was publicly burned in the Comitium. L. Junius Aurelinus Rusticus, the ape of the Stoics, Stoicorum Simia, as an opponent called him, was condemned to death on a similar charge of having published laudations of Thracia and Priscus. The emperor's wife Domitia had been suspected of an intrigue with Paris, a celebrated and popular actor. Domitian consequently divorced his wife and caused Paris to be stabbed in the street to the great grief of the populace. Many brought perfumes and flowers to his tomb. The younger Helvetius Priscus composed an Atalane farce on the subject of Paris and Aenoni, and he was accused of disguising under this form unfavorable criticisms on the emperor. He was arrested in the senate house and condemned to death. Other members of the same clique were sent into banishment, including Aria, the mother of Fania, Gratilla, the wife of Rusticus, and Junius Maricus, his brother. At the same time a decree of the senate was passed by which philosophers, mathematici, astrologers, and soothsayers, 
were banished from Italy, just as in the reign of Vespasian. This decree affected, among others, the Stoic Epictetus and Dion, called Chrysostomus, golden-mouthed, a native of Prusa, whose interesting rhetorical essays are still extant. Domitian's suspicious hatred of the aristocracy, caused by his childlessness, and strengthened and increased by conspiracies and by the opposition of the party of Priscus, cooperated with the financial straits to which he was reduced, to bring about a repetition of the unjust executions and confiscations which had stained the last years of Nero. The system of delation which Gaius, Nero, and Domitian had each in the opening years of his reign sternly and honestly rejected, was called into requisition by Domitian, as well as by the other two. Among the most prominent delators were Catullus Messalinus and Metius Carus. M. Aquilius Regulus, an able orator who was regarded with jealousy by Pliny, and Massa Babius, who, having been proconsul of Baetica, was accused of extortion by Pliny and Senecio, and was condemned. Perhaps the part which Senecio played in the trial had something to do with his own condemnation shortly afterwards. Another prominent favorite at the court of Domitian was a man of low birth named Crispinus, a native of Egypt, who, coming to Rome, at first dealt in salt fish, but was presently exalted to the rank of praetorian prefect. He affected the airs and dress of a dandy, and seems to have been detested as an insolent upstart. Domitian knew that conspiracies were formed against him, and as he could not lay his finger on them, innocent victims often perished. His cousin Flavius Sabinus perished on suspicion of treason. The two whose death excited most indignation were Flavius Clemens and Epaphroditus. Clemens was his cousin, and father of the presumptive heirs of the empire. He and his wife Flavia Domitilla had been converted to a foreign religion, and this was made a charge against them. He was put to death, and Domitilla banished. Epaphroditus was the freedman who had helped Nero to commit suicide, and although twenty-eight years had passed since then, Domitian punished him for meistas. Such examples of cruelty alarmed the emperor's household, and it was from this quarter where he felt himself safe, not from the senate which he feared, that vengeance came. The Augusta, Domitia whom he had divorced on the suspicion of an intrigue with an actor, as already mentioned, he afterwards recalled but she did not feel secure, and she organized a conspiracy along with the freedmen of the palace, Parthenius, Antellus, and Stephanus. The two praetorian prefects, Norbanus and Petronius Secundus, were privy to it, and the conspirators fixed on M. Cosius Nerva as the successor of their victim. Stephanus, a man of great bodily strength, undertook to do the deed. Pretending to have hurt his left arm, he carried it for some days in a sling, and on the appointed day, September 18th, 96 A.D., hid a dagger in the cloths which bound it. Obtaining an audience of the emperor to give information touching a conspiracy, he presented a document to Domitian, and as he was hastily reading it, drew the dagger and stabbed him in the loins. Domitian threw himself on the assassin, and called a page to bring him his sword and summon the attendants but the sword, which lay under a pillow, was useless, for it had been tampered with by the precautions of the conspirators. As Domitian wrestled with Stephanus, the other conspirators rushed in and dispatched their victim. The attendants arrived too late to save their master, but in time to slay Stephanus. The Senate rejoiced at the death of the tyrant whom it detested, and the senators hastened to the Curia to express their long-concealed hatred without restraint. 
his statues and busts were torn down and it was resolved to destroy everything that suggested his memory a decree was passed that the name domitian should everywhere be erased the consequences of the hatred of the senate can be felt by us at the present day for there remain extraordinarily few inscriptions dating from the reign of domitian a decent burial was not accorded to him he was carried out on a common bier such as was used by poor people but his nurse phyllis contrived to deposit his ashes in the temple of the gens flavia a sepulchre for the flavian dynasty which he had built and placed them in the same urn in which reposed the ashes of his beloved niece the divine julia the soldiers did not share in the jubilation of the senate they loved domitian and if they had had a capable leader they would have probably insisted by force on the consecration of their imperator the populace neither rejoiced nor lamented they had no reason to hate him for he had been generous to them but his haughty inaccessible manner hindered them from feeling personal affection for him in his youth domitian was noted for his beauty but in later years he showed a tendency to corpulence and became bald his enemies called him bald nero his eyes were large and languid but the expression of his face was intense the family resemblance to vespasian and titus comes out in his busts he was not fond of physical exercise but was a good archer though he gave luxurious banquets he was moderate in eating he has been accused of gross licentiousness but such charges must be judged in relation to the practice of the times there is no reason to suppose that he was either better or worse in this respect than his contemporaries of noble rank he was an unusually strict defender of the national religion and he protected morality from a religious if not from an ethical point of view in this he followed the example of augustus who regarded religion as conducive to the welfare of the state and his reign contrasts with the indifference of his predecessors in eighty three a d three vestal virgins were charged with unchastity and condemned they were allowed to choose the mode of their death and their seducers were banished but some time later the chief vestal cornelia was accused of a criminal intrigue with a knight named seller and was found guilty domitian as pontifex maximus revived in her case the ancient punishment which was generally regarded as obsolete and cornelia in spite of her protestations of innocence was buried alive in the campus scelleratus it is worth noting that pliny in speaking of this case feels less indignation at the cruelty of the sentence than at the circumstance that domitian judged the case in his alban villa and not in the regia the office of the pontifex Celer was scourged to death in the comitium in maintaining the national religion domitian tried to hinder the spread of oriental cults the jews did not specifically suffer although the tribute of two drachmas to jupiter of the capital was strictly exacted there was a jewish rising in judea eighty five to eighty six a d which was easily put down some christians suffered death for refusing to worship the emperor's image but there is no evidence of a general persecution the tale of the martyrdom of st john the evangelist is universally recognized to be a fable it has been supposed that flavius clemens and domitilla who are said to have been accused of impiety were christians and this is not improbable he encouraged however one oriental cult that of isis the egyptian goddess and built a splendid temple to her and serapis the isium et serapeum in eighty eight a d he celebrated the ludi seculares reckoning the hundred years from the celebration held by augustus if domitian was severe as pontifex maximus 
he was also severe as censor. He strictly enforced the Lex Scantinia against unnatural crimes, and the Lex Iulia against adultery. Many senators and knights were condemned by these laws, and his strictness increased the hatred with which he was regarded. He deprived women, who had been condemned under the Julian law, of the right of using a litter, lectica, or accepting legacies. He tried to suppress the licentiousness of the theatres, and forbade pantomimes to appear in public, while he allowed them to hold performances in private houses. He put down the oriental practice of mutilating boys in order to sell them as eunuchs, and endeavored to diminish the trade in eunuchs by lowering the prices. It devolved upon Domitian to restore the buildings which had been consumed by the fire in the reign of Titus. The temple of Jupiter Capitolinus had to be rebuilt once more, and it rose under his auspices in greater magnificence than ever. He also erected on the capital a temple to Jupiter Custos, in thanksgiving for his own rescue from the hands of the Vitellians. The temple of the divine Vespasian and the divine Titus was built at the western extremity of the forum, between the Clivus Capitolinus and the temple of Concord. Three Corinthian pillars of this small building still stand. Several temples were erected to Minerva, the goddess whom Domitian specially revered. For the purpose of games he built a stone stadium in the campus, and also an odium for musical performances. The former of these buildings accommodated thirty thousand, the latter ten thousand people. Domitian also completed the palace begun by Nero, but confined it to the limits of the Palatine. On all buildings, whether first built by him or only restored, Domitian inscribed his own name. Our records of Domitian are very scanty, and come almost entirely from prejudiced witnesses, so that it is difficult to get a clear and fair view of his acts and policy. On the one hand we have the flatteries of the poets who courted his favor, on the other the venomous invectives written by members of the senatorial party, like Pliny and Tacitus, after his death. Marshall and Statius generally speak of him as a god, and all that appertains to him as divine. Capitoline, the epithet of Jupiter, is applied to him. He is the Ausonian Jupiter, and Domitia the Roman Juno. To Tacitus he is a tyrant without a redeeming virtue, and so the aristocracy in general regarded him. His contemptuous treatment of the Senate, as far as it was represented in the Emperor's Concilium, is cleverly travestied by the satirist Juvenal. The scene is placed in the end of 85 A.D. The members of the council, such is this true history, were suddenly summoned in haste to the Emperor's Alban Citadel. They were, it seems, eleven in number, and in twice or thrice as many verses their crimes are succinctly traced for us with a pen of cynical sincerity. One after another passed before us, Pegasus the prefect, say rather the bailiff of the city, for what is Rome but the emperor's farm, and the prefect of Rome but his manciple? Fuscus, brave and voluptuous, soon to leave his limbs a prey to the Dacian vultures, Crispus, a mild and genial greybeard, who has long owed his life to the meekness with which he has yielded to the current, and shrunk from the vain assertion of independence. The Glabrios, father and son, of whom the elder slunk through an inglorious existence in pusillanimous security, the younger was doomed to perish innocently, condemned to fight with beasts in the arena. The blind Catullus, deadliest of delators, with whom Domitian, as with a blind and aimless weapon, aimed at his destined victims. 
To these were added the sly Viento, the fat old sycophant, Montanus, Crispinus, redolent with the perfumes of his native east, the vile spy Pompeius, who slit men's throats with a whisper, and Rubrius, the perpetrator of some crime too bad, it seems, to be specified even in that day of evil deeds and shameless scandals. Such were the men who now hurried in the darkness along the Appian Way, and met at midnight in the vestibule of the imperial villa, or the tyrant's fortress, which crowned the long hill of the ascent to Alba, anxiously they asked each other what news what the purport of their unexpected summons what foes of rome had broken the prince's slumbers the chatai or the sicambri the britons or the dacians while they were yet waiting for admission the menials of the palace entered bearing aloft a huge torbet a present to the emperor which they had the mortification of seeing introduced into his presence while the doors were still shut against themselves a humble fisherman of the upper coast had found the monster stranded on the beach beneath the fane of venus at ancona and had hurried with his prize across the apennines to receive a reward for so rare an offering to the imperial table when at last the councillors were admitted the question reserved for their deliberations was no other than this whether the big fish should be cut in pieces or served up whole on some enormous platter constructed in its honour the cabinet was no doubt sensibly persuaded that the question allowed at least of no delay, and with due expressions of surprise and admiration voted the dish and set the potter's wheel in motion. End of chapter 21, section 3 Recording by Mark Penfold